Meanwhile, recorded live in the Lava Lamp Lounge, it's somewhere in between a radio zine. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And welcome to thinking a little more critically about the TV shows we are watching. It's issue four, Holidays in the Time of Fascism. Here are a few thoughts on the 4th of July, which were recorded a few days before the holiday, and you are now hearing them a few days afterwards. It's not for any of the usual reasons this year that I'm not as excited about the 4th of July as I might normally be. Usually I have some sort of lame cop-out excuse like, oh, well, I don't want to stay up that late because i got to work tomorrow, or something along the lines of, well, those parties these days just aren't what they used to be, and, uh, well, I remember fireworks displays being much better when I was a kid. But a lot of that kind of stuff covers up the very real problem this year that I'm struggling with, in that going to a fireworks display and watching it with a crowd of the people that I live nearby seems very irresponsible, and that the holiday itself represents something that I feel less than proud of. It's funny that when we're growing up, the 4th of July is almost presented kind of abstractly, away from and not necessarily in relation to what it's celebrating. The first real experience that I had with the holiday is that, oh, we're going to go see some fireworks. It's the 4th of July, America's birthday. But none of that stuff really has any contextual meaning when you're a child. You see a bunch of explosions. You see some flashing lights. Maybe your parents buy some snakes and some ground flowers and say, hey, check these out. But you don't really get much of the wider concept of what's going on what it's all about and, and, and why we're doing this. Part of the problem is that when you start digging into all of this, you have to start explaining a lot about American history, and therein lies the catch. American history is kind of gross, and uh, unfortunately, the more and more we learn about it, the more and more we realize that American history is often just another way of rationalizing all of the horrible things that we've done in the past to call ourselves a country. Now, something like that might seem incendiary considering the holiday that we just celebrated, but I don't think it's just me who's sitting here questioning my own relationship with the symbols of this country and what it means when I venerate them when there is very real suffering happening by people who are also American citizens and they just don't happen to have the same privilege I do. I think one of the challenges of the 4th of July is that it is a holiday built entirely around privilege. A lot of people don't get to celebrate this holiday unless they are white, enjoy some amount of seniority at their job, and more pointedly, have someone else that can work those days for them. The 4th of July is not always a Saturday like it was this year, and that becomes a little bit of a challenge. Often the lowest person on the totem pole is working those days. 
someone that doesn't enjoy the same kind of privilege that I do. There's also the problem of celebrating anything that is American right now. I mean, you don't have to go very far to find people who are very unsatisfied with the current situation of how our country is managed. And there's not a lot that is being done about it. In a lot of ways, we went from being a world power to a world joke. And as we sit here trying to find reasons why we should even consider celebrating the 4th of July, I'm often filled with this concern in the back of my head of, why did I ever celebrate it in the first place? Growing up, certainly it was nice to enjoy the barbecues, spend time with family, and yeah, I mean, the fireworks shows are spectacular. They're quite fun. Having the summer off from school, yeah, that's a blast too. I mean, you're spelling out everything that I loved about childhood. But with each passing year, I became more and more aware of what all of these celebrations really did mean for our country. And this year, it seems very difficult to want to have any kind of celebration about our national excellence when it seems like we are anything but. I guess the biggest challenge with the 4th of July isn't insert hack anecdote about dog being frightened by fireworks, or that I have to work tomorrow and so it's keeping me up past my bedtime. But really, the challenge of the 4th of July now is, why is it celebrated at all? It seems like we could come up with much better excuses for having a big backyard barbecue with our family and lighting off some fireworks. I guess what I'm saying is that any time that we find ourselves doing something that is actually celebrating something other than we think, we should probably change our strategy. I mean, let's face it, fireworks do sound like missiles and gunfire. After the recent riots that took place in the middle of peaceful protests, I could certainly see why fireworks would seem a little bit complicated for celebratory purposes. I guess we all want to celebrate the summer in some form. I don't want to take away anybody's party. That's certainly not my intention. But however it was that you did celebrate it this year, I hope part of your celebration was spent thinking. Thinking about all of the imagery we've seen on the news lately all of the people that we used to really ignore, who are now screaming very loudly that they want change for the better in this country. I hope that instead of fireworks and patriotism and whatnot, that we start to see this holiday as a way that we can look to make our country a better place and not to celebrate cheap milestones of the past. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with the phrase 4th of July as a holiday. It's just what it symbolizes that really makes me I hope by this time you are used to the poetry of Ellen Cloudon appearing on this program. What began as a simple submission to the audio zine, a poem that I could include on one of my episodes when I got around to it, has become a little bit of a working relationship. I try to give Ellen a little bit of notice ahead of time saying, hey, I'm thinking about this for the show, and do you have any poems out there that might kind of add to the flavor? What I appreciate is that not only is Ellen the kind of poet who really takes the initiative to write about what's happening now and what's going through her mind right now, but everything that she does is so 
in the moment, of the moment, that it always feels a little bit dishonest that I have to put these out a couple weeks after they're recorded. There's something about her poems that you should be hearing moments after they're composed, and unfortunately we have a little bit of lag in the amount of time between then and now. Regardless, I'm always happy to bring you something new, so let's turn it over to her. Get It Done by Ellen Revolution, not reform, against the racist murdering swarm. Burning a precinct, got it done. A dismantling battle won. I'm a pacifist at heart, but there has to be a start. The master's tools will never tear the master's rules apart. You can spend four years trying to elect a better rep. One precinct to a half mill voters all day in line, barely a step. You might tell yourself, well, I'll take it to a judge. But Trump appointed thugs who oppress and enact a grudge. You might tell yourself, we should still obey the law. Tell that to those who had to hide from legal genocide, like my own grandma. So take to the streets, I say, to bring about a better day. Releasing from policing, community supports a better way. The national example is in Eugene, within cahoots. Yet we still have police violence, LRAT, tear gas, rubber bullets, tanks, jack boots. We must demilitarize, see through the lies, become our own media, our own voices and eyes. thing I've been trying to do in an effort to acknowledge my own culpability in the world around me and uh, confront my white privilege as a person who certainly benefits from it quite a bit is to reevaluate my relationship with certain kinds of media. This is probably something a lot of us are doing right now, so I'm not unique in this in any way, shape, or form, but I have to acknowledge that one of my secret shames, my, uh, as they say, guilty pleasures, is that I do like a good detective yarn. In fact, I like a good superhero story, too. So much of the media that I am interested in has a sort of authoritarian, fascist slant to it. There is right, there is wrong, there are people that enforce right, and they will find a way to find those who have done wrong and bring justice. The problem with that, of course, is that those who are bringing justice need a little bit of check and balance against them in order for it to even be remotely fair or something that you would want to implement in the world around you. We're seeing a lot of evidence right now of how violent police officers can be in the public with people who are just peacefully protesting. But this is actually applauded in almost every TV show or movie that feature these kinds of characters. In light of all of this, I've been finding it very interesting to review The Wire, which uh, puts not just the police, but 
the drug dealers and the criminals that are working against them as a sort of uh, dual narrative, back and forth, cat and mouse kind of game. When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back. And the show is pretty clear about not picking favorites. I mean, they show the awfulness of the police side by side with the awfulness of the criminals. But what's fascinating is that this story is almost 20 years old, and yet it seems to be talking about things that we are only just now trying to address with these peaceful protests and, unfortunately, police violence. The show is very much concerned with the way that structures and systems are built and are inherent and cannot be avoided, unfortunately, and that they certainly benefit certain races and classes of people well over others. Now, the problem with systemic racism and institutional bureaucracy is that it really isn't something that you can just undo, even if someone maybe good-intentioned but awful wants to make a change. The show kind of begins with this notion that McNulty, who is uh, kind of shown as more or less a uh, neutral, good police officer, wants to start going after bigger fish instead of the street criminals that they are often shown going after. However, that very quickly evolves into something that is so complicated and implicates so many people and takes up so much time, money, and effort that more and more people further up the food chain don't like what's happening and would rather see this kind of police work go away. Now, of course, all of this is mirroring real stories of actual police departments and real problems that do exist where certain kinds of police investigations are encouraged over others and certain kinds of police activity, perhaps maybe dressing up in riot gear and going to bang on the heads of protesters, is certainly encouraged over others. This is a lot to try to unpack as my wife and I sit on the couch and try to enjoy a little television before bedtime, but I think that it is interesting that a show that is 20 years old is smart enough to actually address so many of these issues, and issues that we as a culture still haven't been able to get at. Now, I'm only a few seasons in, so this doesn't actually give me any opportunity to speak with authority about the entire narrative of the program. But let's just take the premise of the first couple seasons at face value. What if the systems around us are racist? What if they're slanted towards benefiting certain kinds of people and absolutely alienating others? How do you combat something like that when it's not just some guy with a knife in an alley about to mug someone. What kind of case do you bring against a world where it's actually a system and not a person that's causing the problems? How do you change that? Now certainly The Wire doesn't have any good answers for us, but I think, perhaps, if we listen carefully to the people in our lives who are shouting and chanting and protesting in the real world, we might begin to glimpse a little bit of how we could, maybe, make some changes in the future. Sometimes our relationship with police officers and the world of correctional institutions is not exactly a healthy one and can lead to many problems throughout our lives. 
And it reminds me of the story of an author from the Northwest, actually, who uh, you know grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and spent time in Salem and the surrounding areas, and, uh, well, had some unfortunate encounters with a variety of institutions. In the mid-50s, times were tough for a lot of people, and it was quite often very difficult to get place to stay and maybe a little bit of food for the night, even if you were willing to work for it. There was an urban legend going around, however. If you were to attack a police officer, or, for example, a police station, then you might actually be able to benefit from being arrested, in that they would give you a place to stay and food for the night. Of course, this was not something that anyone ever put to the test. No one... That is, except Richard Brodigan. And so the story goes that on December 14th, 1955, Richard Brodigan was standing outside of the police station in Eugene, Oregon, with the clever plan that as soon as he had thrown this rock through the window that he could see firmly in front of him, he was going to very soon enjoy a comfortable meal and a warm place to stay. Short-term plans are one thing, but the long-term effects of this event played out for many years on Brodigan's life. Immediately, yes, he did get to spend the night in jail, but he was arrested for disorderly conduct, which comes with a fine of $25. Not exactly something you can afford in 1955, especially if you are poor, and especially if your plan for survival includes breaking a window at a police station in order to get a free meal. In the time that Brodigan was being observed by police in Eugene, they started to notice, well, Brodigan being Brodigan. He was probably best described as eccentric. He'd certainly been living in Eugene for quite some time, and there was a bit of a reputation to him for being the... Uh, unusual character that, uh, well, he became. Certainly, this was the icing on the cake, as it were. It was decided by December 24th, a wonderful Christmas present for the Brodigans, that their son, Richard, would be committed to Oregon State Hospital and transferred to here in Salem, where he would stay and be observed to find out if there was something worse at work. And this was probably one of the worst experiences that young Richard had ever been through in his entire life. In the next two months while he was staying at Oregon State Hospital, he was given electroconvulsive therapy 12 times. The people at the hospital diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia and clinical depression, which may or may not have been the actual truth. It's hard to say. Brodigan was, of course, many things, and enigmatic is probably the best way to encapsulate all of them. And yet, it's hard to know what actually happened in that hospital during that period. What was said? Who was accusing who of what? We do know that Brodigan, of course, was writing during that period, and there are some examples of his texts from that incarceration by February of the following year, he was finally released to his family, but he didn't stay there long. 
Eugene was no longer a safe place for him. He was being watched. They would drive past his house. He was followed everywhere he went. They kept tabs on him. Pretty soon it was so uncomfortable that he left for San Francisco and never returned. It's hard to know how much of an impact this event actually had on Brodigan's state of mind. I don't believe, in all of the reading I've done, that he's actually written about this specific experience, although it is detailed in a few of the different biographies about him. What is known is that once he arrived in San Francisco, his books began to sell quite well, and he, among many others, began to define the late 60s literary psychedelic movement, which is probably ironic because Brodigan, only second to Robert Crumb, did not enjoy any of the popularity that he had accrued as a result of the psychedelic movement. Regardless, Trout Fishing in America, his probably most famous book, became a huge success. This was a double-edged sword for him throughout the rest of his career as he continued to garner book deals and become a celebrated author among those circles, while at the same time really despising them. It eventually led to a deal with the Beatles themselves, who on their very new Zappel label had offered to record an album of Brodigan's work. But when the label dissolved and then the album didn't come out, his popularity also seemed to disappear as Brodigan was less and less popular and sold fewer and fewer books and found that he was actually more well-known in Japan than in the United States, it became very clear that something didn't quite work out for him the way he had hoped. It's very hard to imagine Brodigan concurrent with punk rock and new wave as Sesame Street and Saturday Night Live are beginning to take off. It's difficult to see Brodigan in that California house alone scribbling away on poems and novels that may never get published. You can almost imagine him not fitting in in an active kind of sense. His square peggedness seems to kind of permeate almost everything about him. And by September of 1984, he had committed suicide in his own home. Perhaps it's a little unfair of me to highlight certain elements of his life and suggest that there might be a connection between one and another. I'm not a psychiatrist. I didn't know him. In fact, I wouldn't even say that I know him very well from his books. He's a very difficult character to get to know. However, I can't help but imagine that there might have been a different outcome for Brodigan if, when he had thrown that rock at the police station, someone had come out and just given him some food and a place to stay for a night. What would have happened if he hadn't been monitored? What would have happened if he hadn't been hospitalized? What would have happened if... Perhaps he found himself writing in much different circumstances around Christmas of that year. Would he have become the author that he did? Now that's a dangerous road to go down. I don't want to suggest that it is his trauma that defines him. But certainly I don't think you get the books that he wrote without some of the hardships that he dealt with. The question remains... Do we want to continue living in a world where we offer those kinds of hardships on a regular basis? Mommy, mommy, 
going to do it for us this week here on the program. Somewhere in between a radio scene. Holidays in the Time of Fascism. Issue 4 contains stories written by Austin Rich and Ellen Clouden, including What About the Fourth of July? Get It Done? Considering Walking the Wire? And Brodigan versus the State of Oregon. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most scenes, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story you'd like to send in, read, or if you just want to be a part of the show, why not drop a line to austinrich at gmail.com. That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you. Sun.